Hello, paranormal, fantasy, and mystery fans, and welcome to episode two of Amber A. Logan's The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn. My name is MC, and this is CamCat Unwrapped. Previously on The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn, Marie's arrival at the inn is quite different from what she expected, and mysteries abound. Why are the inn's grounds abandoned? Where are those eerie weeping sounds at night coming from? And what's the deal with the crane and its mysterious island? Chapter 8 Yuna, I said quietly as she laid out the plain toast, runny scrambled eggs, and green salad arrangement I'd become so accustomed to. Do you... I stopped, uncertain how to delicately ask about the crying. The subtle idiosyncrasies of the Japanese language had never been my strong suit. It was hard enough to keep from constantly swearing. Do you think you could bring me a Japanese breakfast tomorrow, please? I spluttered out in a rush. Shit! I hadn't meant to say that. I looked down at the floor, at the soy sauce stain on the tatami. The edges of the stain were hazier than before, as if morphing into something different, almost like the shape of a tiny skull. No, it was just my imagination. I tugged my comforter to cover up the incriminating stain. Yuna looked up at me, and for a moment my heart sank. Why had I asked her that? Now I must look like the ungrateful, demanding American woman who must have her dishes served just so. I might as well have asked for a silver spoon and a tureen of shark fin soup. But then a smile broke across Eunice's face. Of course. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Ogura-san said you wouldn't like Japanese food because, well, you know. Yuna faltered, turned her gaze downward. But I had a feeling you'd prefer a Japanese breakfast. She started stacking the plates of untouched food back onto her lacquered tray. Oh, no, please. I didn't mean right now. I'm happy to eat the breakfast you brought. It's no problem at all, Mari-san. Our motto at Yanagi Inn is, it is always our pleasure to please our guests. We are more than happy to make you a breakfast better suited to your tastes. The line felt canned, practiced. But Yuna looked so happy to be clearing the dishes of the uninspired meal that I didn't have the heart to object any further. Plus, the mental image of steaming rice and hot miso soup made my stomach growl. Yuna rushed out the door and slid it closed behind her with a single socked foot. I smiled at her boundless energy. I remained in bed, luxuriating in the idea of a maid bringing me a warm, delectable breakfast while I relaxed. Normally, I hated being waited on, actively disliked eating at fine restaurants where the waiters tried to put cloth napkins in ladies' laps, or even going to a friend's house who insisted on cooking everything herself while I had to stand back, helpless, and watch her cook and plate everything for me. But today... I felt like a rajah of old, waited on by my many servants who hovered in the sultry wings of my palace, anticipating my every need. 
Then I immediately felt guilty and scooted over to the table. Yuna returned so quickly that I wondered if the chef had had a spare breakfast waiting for just such a request. She brandished a lacquered tray laden with the heavenly scents of a true ryokan breakfast, a satisfied smile upon her face. I inhaled deeply, savoring the scent of warm rice and grilled fish. Now this felt like Japan. As Yuna set out the many dishes, a rounded mound of white rice, miso soup with cubes of tofu floating on top, an elegant plate with grilled fish, tiny dishes of pickled daikon and eggplant. I summoned the courage to ask the question I'd meant to ask her before. Yuna-chan, I began again slowly. Do you go home at night when you're on duty, or do you sleep here at the Ryokan? Yuna let out a laugh, loud and jarring almost knocking over the tiny vase with its single red poppy she had just placed on my table. Of course I go home. Did you think I live here? I have a life outside this job, you know. I didn't mean it like that. I just, I trailed off, idly repositioning a piece of fish with my chopsticks. Yuna, still kneeling beside me, cocked her head. I chewed the inside of my lip. In the light of day, my question sounded silly even to me. I picked up my phone, snapped pictures of my breakfast dishes from various angles, readjusted the flower in its face, and slid it closer to my teacup. Click. Finally, a breakfast to make Rissa jealous. But then again, my little sister didn't have the same nostalgia for Japan that I did, since she was only six when we moved away. I didn't even have photos to help remind her, since Mom accidentally left all our photo albums behind. No wonder she remembered next to nothing about our life here. I barely remembered, and I was ten when we left. Yuna was still watching me closely, hugging the serving tray to her chest. What is it, Marisan? I took a deep breath. Do you know anything about the nighttime crying? I continued nonchalantly taking photos, tweaking the angle of the ceramic bowls and plates here or there, though I snuck a quick glance at Yuna's face. She hesitated for a telling moment. Crying? I'm sure it's just the wind. This real con is over a hundred years old. It is very drafty. I set my phone down on the table with a click. We both remained silent, unmoving. I stared at the rounded bowl of rice, artfully sprinkled with a few black sesame seeds, trying to decide how to respond. It's not the wind. Oh, Mari-san, Yuna leaned forward, dropping her tray to the tatami floor. Do you want to know what I really think it is? She paused dramatically, eyebrows raised. A spirit or a ghost? A thin trickle of ice dripped down my spine. Yuna-chan, I said, trying to control the quaver in my voice. You read too much manga. No, I mean it. I heard it once, the crying, very late at night before I even started working here. It wasn't natural. It could just be the crane. 
The crane? What crane? We stared at each other for a few heartbeats at an impasse. Never mind. I picked up my chopsticks, snapped up a piece of pickled daikon. Yuna nodded, picked up her tray. Her lips were tight and her eyes had lost their sparkle. I wanted to say something to her but was at a loss. For some reason, I didn't want to talk about the crane, as if it were my own private discovery and I wasn't ready to bring in anyone else yet, besides Honda-san, of course. Yuna bowed silently in the doorway, then left the room. I set down my chopsticks, stared out the glass windows to the rocks and shaggy bushes beyond. I'd never believed in ghosts. Years ago, Rissa convinced me to go on a ghost tour of Chicago, and I just found it boring. Besides the genuine history of the old buildings, of course. It didn't make sense for a human being to die and then leave behind some part of itself in an old hotel or a graveyard, as if it were a discarded scarf or worn hat. Death was permanent, immutable. I clenched my jaw, fighting back the sudden wave of emotion I knew would, if unchecked, devolve into tears. Yet, I couldn't explain the sounds any more than Yuna could. Maybe there really was something out of the ordinary at work, even if it wasn't ghostly. Or maybe Yuna really did just read too much manga. After my first true Ryokan breakfast, I set out into the gardens again, armed with my easy-access camera bag and travel umbrella, intent on finding the crane. My feet led me down the gravel paths, the air around me cool but not cold, the sky gray but unthreatening. My belly was full, yet I had a lightness in my step. The twists and turns of the garden's paths were slowly becoming familiar. Here, the intersection with the gnarled old pine resting on his ancient crutch. There, the mossy rock garden with a cracked granite bench. I smiled at these landmarks, warming to their seasoned personalities but didn't linger to appreciate them. I had somewhere I needed to be. Soon I found myself at the spot where the old bridge had been, where I'd seen the crane resting on the broken column. But no one was there, just an old toad croaking on the edge of the water. I squatted down, snapped a few photos of him, though his gray-brown skin blended so thoroughly with the mud and leaves I wasn't sure how well he'd show up. I stood, then turned in a slow circle, assessing my surroundings. The weather was surprisingly warm for late winter, the sun just now peeking out of the clouds. I closed my eyes, savored the sensation of warm light on my eyelids. Sometimes it was the little things, a friendly smile, the feel of sunlight on skin that made life feel worth living. When I opened my eyes, a scrubby path, more deer trail than cultivated walking path, appeared before me, winding its way through the bushes. The hairs stood up along my arms as I took a step toward it. I could have sworn it wasn't there before. The trail didn't have the characteristic gravel of the approved paths, but something about it called to me, pulled me forward. 
I stepped through the tall grass onto the trail, ducking under the low-hanging branches of a Japanese maple in need of trimming. Yes, this felt right. I pushed on, farther and farther, winding in and out of trees and around bushes, occasionally crossing over the normal gravel paths, only to plunge again onto their wild cousin, all the while praying Ogura-san wouldn't appear out of nowhere with her ice queen gaze and remind me to stay on the paths. But I was on a path, wasn't I? I paused beside a small pool of stagnant water with an inert bamboo deer chaser beside it. A thick bamboo tube was poised stationary over its rock, no longer filling itself with the running water from some hidden hose. I took a step back, envisioning the scene with fresh eyes. This must have once been quite beautiful. And for a moment I did see it. The pool of water cleaned of its debris and sparkling clear, with the underground pump forcing water into the bamboo, the crack as the bamboo tube filled with water and pivoted down to hit the rock and unload its water back into the pool. I pulled out my camera, popped off the lens cap, but the vision was gone. The sun disappeared behind the clouds again, and before me stood a murky pond and a broken water feature overshadowed by shaggy, overgrown greenery. Nothing more. But there was still beauty here, in the worn, abandoned state. The green haze in the water, the dark stain of moss on the pale bamboo, the clusters of duckweed spreading across the surface. I snapped photos from a few angles, a smile growing across my face. Yes, there was beauty here. Letting my camera fall back against my chest, I stepped over knee-high weeds to reach the deer chaser itself. I tilted back the bamboo like a seesaw, then let it fall back into place. Crack! The sound of bamboo hitting stone was louder than expected, and I winced in the otherwise silent air. A cluster of distant ravens startled at the sound and rose into the sky with a flurry of wings and disgruntled caws. I raised my head to watch them depart and gasped. My crane. Perhaps she had been startled by the sound as well. She was flying overhead, gliding with minimal effort just above me in the cloudy sky. I was rooted to the spot, watching her every movement when she opened her mouth and let out a loud, mournful call. The sound rang out through the clear sky, silencing everything else, from the croaking toad to the distant, angry ravens. A chill ran down the back of my neck. The crane's woeful cry was nothing like the sound I'd heard in the night. Chapter 9 I lifted my camera to capture the crane in motion, her beautiful black-tipped feathers fluttering in the air like a courtesan's fan. But a photograph wasn't enough. I let the camera drop back into its case and took off running down the deer path, an urgency burning in my veins, though the logical part of my brain was bewildered by the rush. I only knew I had to follow. I dodged between overgrown evergreen hedges and the needles stung my face, my arms, the scratches making me itchy and red. I stumbled over a misplaced rock, twisting my ankle, and I winced but kept going, unable to stop. 
Finally, I stumbled out into a clearing, falling to my knees in the tall grass fringing the water's edge. Somehow, I'd ended up on the far side of the estate, for there was the island's opposite bank, and it was surprisingly near, just thirty feet or so across a cold expanse of pond. As I took a moment to catch my breath, a sound rose all around me, the trilling of a myriad cicadas, so loud this time my hands flew up to cover my ears. But as I looked around, I saw only bare trees and cold, murky water, not the time or place for summer bugs. This shouldn't be happening. I squeezed my eyes closed, took deep breaths, the ache in my chest reverberating with the sound surrounding me. It's all in your head, Mari. It isn't real. The sounds faded away. I let out a long, slow breath and opened my eyes. More features were visible on this side of the island. The remains of a small tea house building, an artificial hill, Although most of the island's interior was still shrouded by the tall stalks of bamboo growing up to the water's edge, I couldn't see the crane anywhere, but some uncanny innate sense told me she was there, somewhere on the island, calling to me. Instinctively, I stepped forward and found myself standing in the murky shallows of the pond, my sandals and socks still on, soaking the hem of my yukata in the cold, cold water. Oh, what if Ogura-san could see me now? I shivered and shot a nervous glance over my shoulder. I stared down at my feet in the icy water, at the tiny flecks of old gray-green duckweed bobbing in clusters. Floating together in the greenish pool, the clumps looked almost like lily pads hovering over my shadowy feet. The lighting was perfect, the overcast sky concealing shadows. Such beauty. I bent down, though my feet were now all pins and needles, taking care to keep the damp hem of my yukata out of the water. I reached for my camera, but then stopped. There, just a few inches below the surface of the water, was a flat white stone. I sucked in air through my teeth. Was it a submerged stepping stone? I kicked my wet sandals back to shore and pushed away the duckweed with my socked toes to reveal the whole stone. It was at least a foot in diameter, flat on top, nearly a proper circle. Though now slimy with green moss, it might have once been a lovely white marble stepping stone. But how was that possible? Had some giant come along and hammered it into the soft ground under the water? I took a deep breath and pressed my weight down upon it. It held. I stepped my second foot out onto the marble stone, trembling as I realized I was standing in the pond now, on a slick and slimy stone. Focus, Mari, focus. You're okay. But would I be okay if I fell in? I'd never learned to swim. Mom had been vehemently against it, insisting it was safer to just avoid the water. Rissa had stubbornly sought out adult swimming lessons when she went away to college, seemingly became proficient, but not me. Maybe it was Mom's fears that colored my own views on swimming, but sometimes it felt like more than that, 
My aversion was primal, visceral, an animalistic response to danger. I took a deep breath. I'd just have to be careful not to fall in. I found a thick stick on the bank and used it to wave through the water in front of me, to clear away the duckweed and feel about for another stone. There, a glimmer of white under the surface, and my stick hit something solid. My heart expanded in my chest. One stone could be a coincidence, but two stones were a path. I pushed heavily on the stone with my stick, testing its resistance, then stepped out onto it. This one was submerged lower than the first, so I was standing in six inches of icy water. But my yukata was beyond worrying about anyways, and I was too exhilarated to worry about the numbness of my toes. You're okay, Mari. You're okay. I made my way toward the island in this manner, sweeping with my stick, taking ginger steps forward one at a time. When I was about halfway between the island and the mainland, I made the mistake of turning my head, gauging my progress. I was standing in the middle of a pond. My body began trembling, my palms going nearly as numb as my cold, submerged feet. I felt vulnerable, naked, as exposed as if I were standing on an open stage in the middle of an auditorium, spotlights focused on me. I froze, my eyes darting in all directions. My ankle wobbled on the slick stone, and I dropped to a crouch, hugging my knees to make myself smaller, less noticeable in the middle of this body of water. What the hell was wrong with me? I squeezed my eyes shut against the glimmering green water surrounding me. I couldn't move, couldn't even open my eyes. Breathe, Mari, breathe. I could hear Rissa's voice murmuring quietly in my ear, her warm hand on my shoulder. A minute later, I opened my eyes, the panic slowly leeching out of my pores. An orange and white koi fish was swimming lazily in between the stepping stones, his round O of a mouth opening and closing near the surface, pushing his way through the green duckweed. Again, the ache in my chest, a yawning hole as I gazed at the fish. Yet there was such beauty, like someone had spilled gallons of edamame across the surface of the pond. I scrambled to unzip my camera bag, eyes glued to the beautiful fish. But the zipper was already open. My camera bag was empty. Chapter 10 Mom, you didn't have to give me a present. I know I didn't need to, silly girl. I wanted to get you something because I'm proud of you. You don't take enough time to celebrate your accomplishments, sweetheart. I moved my plate of half-eaten matcha cheesecake aside to make room for the wrapped box. I peeled the tape off one corner. The floral paper was thick, handmade, the expensive kind Mom always insisted on buying, and which always made me nervous to tear. Mom leaned across the table in her striped apron, eyes glued to the box as if she were the one dying to find out what was inside. I unfolded the last edge of paper, exposing the slick white box underneath. My gaze bounced across the surface, taking in the picture, words, logo, as my mouth slowly opened. Wait, 
Is this the... Do you like it? I wasn't sure what kind of camera to get, so I swore Patricia and Ryan to secrecy and got them to share some expert knowledge. I could feel her searching my face, but I honestly didn't know how I should respond. Of course I do. But this, it's too much. I can't accept this. I started folding the fancy paper up over the edges of the box, even though I knew it was ridiculous. Sweetie pie. Mom laid her hand on mine, stopping me from my futile attempt to rewrap the gift. I stared at her hand, at the familiar orange stain of her fingernails from the peeling of innumerable citrus fruits. Just accept that someone wants to do something nice for you, for once. I let out a deep breath, lifted my hand off the paper. It fluttered back down, exposing the Canon 6D Mark II box. I fought down a girlish giggle, torn between texting Trisha and Ryan to chew them out or buying them a drink for advising my mother to pick this outrageously expensive camera. I turned back toward mom, a hesitant smile on my face. Thanks. I mean it. Thank you so much. You don't know what this means to me. But you can't afford this. You deserve this, darling. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. She patted my hand again. I mean it. How did mom know what I needed to hear? I don't know how long I spent retracing my steps, diving through bushes, trying to reconstruct the wild path I'd taken in pursuit of the crane. Now, with some distance between me and the island, my attempt to cross the pond felt foolish, not to mention inappropriate. How could I have been so careless, chasing after the crane like she was the white rabbit to my Alice? And how could I have lost that camera of all things? My fingertips were raw and my forearms covered in tiny cuts, but I pressed on, unwilling to leave a single inch of path unexamined. But the deer trail I'd followed before seemed even less cohesive in the other direction, and I found myself losing track of it altogether. Nothing looked familiar. The overhanging trees were menacing, grasping for me with greedy fingers. The vines snagged my feet, trying to drag me to the ground. Where was the pool with the deer chaser? I spun in a circle, frustration burning up what little patience I had left for the great outdoors. The tiny scratches up and down my arms stung with evergreen sap, and it was all I could do to avoid scratching them till they bled. I had to admit it to myself. I'd lost the trail. I'd lost my camera. The trudge to my room was a blur of tears but somehow I made it back and slipped off my wet sandals on the veranda. If my futon had still been laid out, I would have fallen onto it, soiling the comforter with pond water. Instead, I laid my head down on the table like I had as a little girl. Why did it have to be that camera? My hands tightened into fists on the tabletop. I couldn't photograph the inn, for the sake of posterity, using only my damned phone. They could have just asked Yuna to take the pictures if it were that simple. Calm down, Mari. The camera had to be out there somewhere. There was still hope. Unless it fell into the pond. A dark image formed in my mind. 
my camera clogged with weeds and mud, being dragged into the murky depths of the pond's dark water by a gray and waterlogged hand. I shook my head to clear it, but a misty fog remained behind. My gaze roamed somberly around the room, focusing on the black skull-shaped stain I'd made on the tatami mat, on the wet footprints I'd trailed in from outside. In my absence, Yuna had tidied up, put away my bedding, opened the screens to let in the brisk air, and I'd come in and messed it all up again. I crept down the lightless hallway in the direction of the baths, hoping beyond hope that Yuna would be there cleaning again. I didn't have the strength to handle this alone, but maybe if I found Yuna, she could help me. It must be nearing noon. Would Yuna even still be here? What the hell day was it? I frowned, unease clouding my reasoning. The halls were silent, musty, and every one of my senses was tingling on high alert. But the only sounds were the scuffling of my slippers on the wood floors and my fingers trailing the wall beside me, orienting me in the near darkness. My breath came quick and sharp in my lungs. But then, a noise. I stopped, held my breath. A thump, scrape. A thump, scrape. I pressed my trembling hand against the wall, unable to take another step. Dark, irrational images filled my mind. Horror film killers wielding kitchen knives. Gangsters dragging a bloody body they'd chopped up and thrown into a laundry bag. The eerie sounds filled my brain with humanity's worst depravities, and I squeezed my eyes shut like a child closing her eyes on the boogeyman hiding in her closet. But the sounds were drawing closer. The prey animal inside me awoke, instantly light on my feet, with flight screaming in my veins. I spun and fled down the hall, seeking nothing but a place to hide in that long, featureless corridor. My hand, still trailing along the wall, hit a doorframe. In my mad flight, I didn't pause to think if anyone might be inside, but instead just flung open the door. Thankfully, it was dark. I stepped inside, slid the door closed behind me, and crumpled to the floor. I held my breath and tried to listen for the thumping in the hallway over my own beating heart. Thump, scrape, coming nearer. The thin door behind me no longer felt sufficient. I needed to hide, put something hard and solid between me and whatever was making that sound out there in the dark hallway. I stumbled through the room, my eyes adjusting to the low light filtering through the edges of the screens. I wasn't in a guest room as I had assumed. The layout seemed identical to my own room, down to the sliding closet doors, but the furniture was all wrong. I scrambled on hands and knees away from the door, away from the ominous sounds I found so much more terrifying than the unidentified crying in the night, though I couldn't begin to explain why. I scrambled to the closet door, slid it open. It was full of extra comforters and covers, but I shoved aside a stack to squeeze my body into the lower level, the shelf low and protective over my head. I slid the door closed behind me. I'd hidden in closets like this as a child, sometimes with Rissa, sometimes alone, sometimes as part of a game, but sometimes because I was hiding from the world, 
from my mother, from ghosts. True darkness, and the faint scent of jasmine, some kind of soap or detergent. I allowed myself to unclench my muscles, to relax against the hard wall and cover myself with the plush bedding. I was safe. Seconds ticked by. With the comforters and the door between me and the outside world, everything was muffled, distant. My ragged breaths were filling the small space with moist air, making it harder and harder to breathe. But I couldn't tell whether the thing was still making its way down the hallway, so I resolved to stay put for a while longer to make damn sure. A minute passed. My heart rate slowed. I became calmer, saner. For a moment, I almost laughed. What was I doing in this closet? But then I heard the quiet swish of the door to the hallway opening, and I froze, fingers biting into the comforter hiding me, all the hairs on my arms rising and tingling in unison. The door slid closed, and then light flooded the room beyond the closet, seeping in under the door beside me. I'd closed the closet door too well, hadn't left even a gap, and I didn't dare open it even a fraction to spy on what had just entered the room. I closed my eyes, attuning my ears, clenching the comforter even tighter to keep my entire body from shaking. One more scrape, and then silence. Whatever it was had dragged its load inside and dropped it. My mind contrived myriad shapes for that object, but all were dark and heavy and covered in some kind of black, wet covering. A few footsteps, something settling into a chair. How long would I have to hide in this closet? I was sure the pounding of my heart was audible, my damp, rapid breath filling the cramped space. Part of my mind wanted to run, to just fling the door open and make for the hallway and back to the safety of my room. But I calmed that madness, reminded myself that I was likely being foolish, a grown woman hiding in a closet at the first ambiguous noise. I brought my breathing, my heart under control, and listened as best I could through the closed closet door. The fluttering of papers, a desk drawer opening and closing. Nice, mundane sounds. Was this an office? At that thought, my face burned, and my heart caved deeper into my chest. I couldn't let anyone see me huddled under a pile of comforters like a child playing hide-and-seek. What was it about Yanagi Inn that set my imagination down such a dark, terrifying rabbit hole that I had ended up like this? A telephone rang, the sound at odds with my surreal situation as well as unusually outdated. Was that a real landline? Then the ringing stopped, replaced by the muffled sounds of talking. I slid open the closet door a fraction of an inch, hoping to pick up the words. Yes, she arrived, though I don't understand why she... Ogura's voice, a double-edged sword of relief and anxiety, soundly replaced any lingering terror. Yes, of course, I understand. Her voice lacked its usual iciness, held a deferential tone. I wouldn't have expected Ogura-san to be capable of. 
Was she talking to the owner? I tried to shift my body so I could peer through the crack, but my knee bumped the door just enough that I froze, lest I draw attention to myself. On Wednesday? No, not at all. Of course, we look forward to receiving you. Silence. Then the click of a receiver returning to its cradle. Wednesday, just a few days away. Did that mean I'd finally get a chance to meet the owner? Minutes passed as Ogura sat at her desk, performing unknown clerical tasks. My contorted muscles ached. My lungs labored in the hot, dense air. I needed to get out. I needed to talk to Yuna. Yuna, my camera. In my closet-hiding drama, I'd managed to forget how I'd lost my most treasured possession. I balled my hands into fists. Get out, Mari. Mad, convoluted plans of how to distract Ogurasan and escape formed in my mind. Throwing my voice, setting fires, telepathy. When she abruptly stood, switched off the light, and left the room, sliding the door closed behind her. I remained still. Would she return momentarily and I'd slam into her as I dashed out the door? Or was this my only chance to escape unnoticed? Perhaps it didn't matter anymore. I needed out. I took a final deep breath of stale tatami and jasmine soap. Now. I slid open the closet door and stumbled out on cramped legs. I caught myself on a desk and rushed to the door, slid it open, and fled outside. Out in the hall, I should have calmed down. I was in neutral territory, nowhere forbidden. Yet my nerves were tight, my adrenaline running hard and fast, and I knew I couldn't stop until I was in the safety of my own room. I stumbled back down the dark hallways, and when I finally made it through my door, my whole body shuddered with relief. I sank to my hands and knees and crawled to the spot where my bed usually was, adrenaline seeping out of my body like a fine mist, replaced by an acidic burn in my muscles and stomach. I lay on my belly, sprawled flat on the tatami. I fought to keep my eyes open, but why was I fighting? I let them close. In the final moments before I drifted off to sleep, I realized with a distant kind of alarm that I never figured out what heavy object Ogura-san had been dragging. And I hadn't closed the office door behind me. Chapter 11 The corridors were an endless series of twists and turns, the walls dark and dripping with foul water. But the little girl wouldn't stop running, her sobs reverberating in my ears. I ran and ran, chasing after her but never closing the distance between us. Wait, I want to help you, I cried. But the words were drowned out by the deafening trill of cicadas. I awoke to the soothing sound of Yuna moving around my room in her white-socked feet and the comforting sense of Ryokan breakfast, warm rice, grilled fish. My mind was hazy, still filled with last night's dream. I scrunched my eyes closed tighter. At least it had felt like a dream. Someone was crying. Or had I been the one crying? I think I'd gone to investigate. Yuna was chuckling. 
Good morning, sleeping beauty. I opened my eyes. Then I bolted upright, my face flushed. I raised a hand to my cheek, feeling the sweaty imprint of tatami weave on my skin. I'd spent the whole night sleeping on the floor? How long did I sleep? I muttered, smoothing my bedraggled hair. That depends on when you fell asleep. Yuna knelt and began laying out the individual ceramic dishes on my table. I can't believe the evening maid didn't at least wake you for dinner. I inhaled deeply, savoring the aroma of roasted green tea and the citrusy scent of ponzu sauce. My stomach growled loudly. I covered my belly with a hand and flashed a grin at Yuna. She chuckled again. Well, you must be starving. What made you fall asleep so early? She paused in her table arranging, looked me over slowly. Are you unwell? Damn those existential questions. Memories from yesterday surged over me. My mad dash pursuing the crane, losing my camera, terror-filled minutes hiding in a closet, the maybe or maybe not dream. I glanced down at my yukata, splattered with mud and half untied. I must look crazy. No wonder she thought me unwell. Yuna discreetly turned away as I flushed deeper and scrambled to readjust my clothes to an acceptable level of modesty. But at least Yuna was here, my one friendly face in this foreboding inn. Maybe she could help me recover my camera. Maybe she could help me make sense of everything. I'm fine, but Yuna, I hate to ask this, but I don't know who else to- Oh! Yuna interrupted me. Hold that thought. She jumped to her feet and skittered out of the room like an excited child. I chuckled at her youthful energy and crawled to the table, flopped into the floor chair. The white teacup Yuna had just filled was warm in my hands, and I closed my eyes, inhaled the roasted, slightly bitter aroma. This, this scent, I needed more of it in my life. Yuna returned, holding something behind her back like a surprise birthday present, a mischievous grin on her face. This was left on your veranda. She unveiled the parcel with a ta-da expression on her face and set it down with a clunk beside my bowl of rice. It was wrapped in a navy blue furoshiki, a white wave pattern decorating the fabric. It was left for me? I stared at the beautiful cloth, not comprehending. Go on, open it! Yuna knelt beside me, bouncing up and down. Who is it from? Was there a note? Yuna sucked in her breath. Ooh, maybe a secret admirer? I snorted. A snapshot of Thad handing me an unwrapped Chicago Bears sweatshirt on my last birthday flashed to mind. Yuna definitely read too much manga. Unlikely. Are there even any eligible men staying at Yunagi Inn? More than you can handle, Yuna laughed and patted my shoulder. But the mirth wasn't reflected in her eyes. I gave her a wry smile, then untied the loose knot. The dark blue wrapping fell away, and I gasped. My camera. Wait, isn't that your camera? The one you were using in the baths? Yuna harumphed. 
I stroked the camera through blurry eyes, ignoring Yuna's words. My fingertips traced the strap. It was wet. Then I picked up the camera, my fingers flying over the body, checking its integrity. It seemed fine, thank God. Well, Yuna climbed to her feet, clearly disappointed by the turn of events. I'll leave you to it. My eyes shifted from the camera back to the meal she'd arranged for me. Sorry, yeah, thanks, I said. But Yuna was already performing her perfunctory bow and sliding the door closed behind her. I took a deep breath, praying silently to whatever gods might be listening that my camera was still functional, that the precious photographs it contained were still intact and not irretrievably lost. When the camera switched on with its familiar clicks, relief spread through my body. The red light above the memory cart flashed for what seemed like ages before the screen came to life. But then there they were, my photos of the crane. Not perfectly framed, which I hadn't expected anyway. But I had captured her elegance, her beauty in the sleek line of her body the sharp contrast of her white to her red to her black. A fine start. After I satisfied my concerns, I switched off the camera and set it down gently on the table. Only then did I notice the flash of color in the bottom of the furoshiki, a tiny red origami crane. It must have been wrapped up with the camera. I plucked the delicate paper bird off the table, held it on the flat of my palm, so small. At this scale, it must have taken great skill to fold it. I raised my palm, peered into the tiny crane's absent eyes. Was this little fellow a calling card? My camera must have been returned by someone who knew about the crane. Someone who knew I knew about the crane. Honda-san. I pinched the crane's wings between my fingers made it rise into the air as if flying. I brought it down to rest on my mound of rice, as if it had flown to the top of a miniature snow-topped mountain. The tiny blood-red crane sitting atop the snowy rice struck a chord within me, like the reverberation of the perfect note within my bones. I picked up my camera, snapped a flurry of photos from different angles, then checked the viewfinder. Now that was a picture to send to Rissa. I really should take more food pictures on this vacation. Vacation? Wasn't this supposed to be work? I was forgetting my purpose. I lifted my camera again for a moment, then set it back down. I needed to thank Honda-san for finding and returning my camera. I had to let her know how much that meant to me. But Yanagi Inn seemed so isolated so remote. I was in no position to buy a thank you gift. I didn't even know the distance to the nearest village, didn't know if I could walk it or if I needed to hire a car. How long it had been since I'd stepped outside the inn's boundaries. Time seemed to pass differently here, as if the inn and its gardens were running at a different speed than the outside world. And if I stepped outside, I'd find myself jarringly out of sync. I shook my head. First was breakfast. I pressed my hands together, whispered itadakimasu as had been ingrained in me since childhood, and ate.
eating seemed to have cleared my head. Satiated, though not uncomfortably full, the way only a solid Japanese-style meal could leave me. I snapped a photo of my nearly empty dishes, though I couldn't have explained why. Perhaps it was proof. Proof that I existed. That I'd occupied this surreal space and eaten these meals. That all of this wasn't some bizarre dream, and I'd wake up in my apartment in Chicago with some pressing deadline and an emotionally difficult text from Thad to answer. Perhaps it was because, this time, I wanted to remember my days in Japan. Reviewing the after photos sent a surge of warmth through my body. I was a messy eater. Grains of rice floated in the dregs of soup, dotted the tabletop. But that just made the consumed meal look all the more satisfying, authentic. I should take more after pictures. The world is messy after all. At least, my life sure as hell was. Grains of rice on the table, dirty socks, unbrushed hair. The word authenticity rang in my ears as I pressed my hands together again and whispered Ochisosama to an unseen chef somewhere in the estate. Chapter 12 I took a quick shower and changed into a clean yukata, this one an unusual shade of orangey melon, then sank to my knees beside my largely still-packed luggage and began rummaging. What could I give to Honda-san? And what about Yuna? Mom had instructed me on gift-giving back when we lived in Japan. Whenever we would visit someone's house or travel to a hot springs resort or seaside town, we would always bring some local citrus fruit or crackers or sweets back with us for my father's co-workers and our neighbors. During my flurry of packing for Japan, I'd had the foresight to run to the store and grab a few Chicago-specific items. Small boxes of Cracker Jacks, a tin of Brock's candies, and my favorite, bars of Vosges chocolate. At the last minute, in a flash of inspiration, I'd also thrown in a copy of Flora and Fauna of Illinois, a gorgeous little book showcasing the plants and animals of the state. I wasn't sure at the time why I'd bothered to bring it, but now it came full circle in my mind. Honda-san, with her love of gardening and nature and animals, would be just the person to receive the book. I found the plastic sack, pulled out the decorative box of mini Vosges chocolate bars. A good choice for a girl like Yuna. I set the box on my low table, making a mental note to give it to her when I next saw her. The book was harder to find. It wasn't with the other gifts. But I'd already unpacked my reading books, a few favorite Murakami novels, and it wasn't among them. I sighed, slumped back onto my heels. Was it time to admit I needed to unpack all my luggage? I stared at the pile of luggage in the corner. It was probably good that this gift search had come up, else I might never have unpacked. Yet there was something unsettling about unloading my personal effects into this room, even though it had started to feel, if not quite homey, at least like my home base, like a safe spawn point in an unsettling video game. I finally found the photography book in the bottom of my carry-on. No wonder that thing was so heavy, underneath the newest issue of popular photography. 
I flipped through the book's glossy pages. Still in good shape? Yes, it would make a good gift. It took longer to find appropriate packaging, as I hadn't had the foresight to pack any tissue paper or a folded gift bag. I eyeballed the Furoshiki Honda I'd used for wrapping my camera, but decided it might be cheesy to reuse the same wrapping for a thank you gift. Then I remembered I'd brought a few scarves with me, some of the many accessories I'd plucked from Mom's closet when Rissa and I were going through her things. They weren't items I recognized as Mom's favorites or anything, so I didn't have to feel bad giving them away. Still, though, I held a scarf patterned with black and yellow sunflowers up to my face and breathed in its scent. Mandarins. I closed my eyes, exhaled a deep breath. Then I carefully wrapped the book in the scarf, trying my best to mimic how Honda had wrapped my camera as I fought back the tears. Stop it, Mari. I blinked rapidly. But someday they'd all be gone. All the little reminders, the mementos I'd taken home. They'd break or get worn out or lost, or I'd give up and take them to goodwill. And one day I'd look around and realize I didn't have a single thing left to remember Mom by. Stop it, Mari. I dropped the partially wrapped book on the table and closed my eyes. Breathe, Mari, breathe. I spun the ring on my finger around and around as I practiced my breathing exercises. This would pass. I opened my eyes, ready to focus again. The wrapping didn't have to be perfect. It just had to cover the damned book. I pulled the scarf off the book, wrapped it around like I would a sheet of wrapping paper, except I tied off the ends with a simple twist handle. There, I smiled. Not perfect, but good enough. The sun was high in the sky when I stepped outside. It shed little warmth, but I appreciated the friendly rays. I tilted my head upward and closed my eyes just to feel the sun on my eyelids. Vitamin D. A pang of annoyance shot through me. I'd left my vitamin D supplements at home. Well, all the more reason to go outside, to feel the sun on my skin. With every glint of sunlight on the surface of the water, and every flicker of movement as some animal startled at my approach, my hands grabbed for the phantom camera around my neck, itching to capture the transient beauty around me. But I'd left my camera back in the room in a fit of paranoia, so I had to keep reminding myself to just enjoy my surroundings, that I needed to be present now and not assume that everything was there for me to slip into a back pocket for later enjoyment. Not that there was anything wrong with capturing that perfect moment in a permanent fixed state. I was a visual person, after all, and photography was my way of preserving memories. My way of preventing loss. But now was not that time. I grasped the scarf package tight in my hand and pressed on, swallowing my regret at leaving my camera behind with every iridescent dragonfly and just budding tree branch I encountered on my search for Honda. I began with the pond. Dragonflies flitted and swerved in a hypnotizing dance along the water's surface, but I wrinkled my nose at the smell. 
Some new algae or other slimy reddish-brown growth was spreading in the water, and an unpleasant scent of murk and rot was rising off the surface. My eyes searched the edges, for Honda, for the crane, but nothing new availed itself. I rushed away from the water, eager to rid myself of the foul stench. But where to next? I'd started to construct a mental map of the grounds, fleshed out over time as I'd explored further and further. Perhaps Honda would be by the old tea house? Mom had taken tea ceremony lessons when I was a child. One of our neighbors used to teach the classes and invited my mother out of the blue one morning when Mom was taking our trash out to the collection site. Was it so obvious that Mom needed friends that complete strangers would approach her and invite her to social events? She did stand out with her peroxide blonde hair and nearly six-foot frame. I paused on the path, letting the memories course over me. She'd gone to the lessons for weeks, leaving me at home to cook dinner, usually just cup noodles, for me and Rissa while she was at her class. What had she done for dinner on those nights? I shook my head of its non-sequiturs and continued down the path toward the tea house. The tea house was little more than a raised two-room structure with sliding doors and a narrow veranda. Its wooden planks were green with age, but a few had been replaced over time, possibly Honda's handiwork. Even before I spotted her sitting on the front veranda, I sensed she would be there. I approached on silent feet up the slate hill, hesitant to disturb her, for she appeared to be meditating, or perhaps just listening intently. I stopped, cocked my head, but I didn't hear anything of note. When I walked closer, she opened her eyes. Mari-san, how are you? She smiled warmly, beginning to stand up. Oh, don't stand for me, Honda-san. I'm sorry to have bothered you. As I said the words, a tiny, petulant voice inside me cried out, Why aren't you working on the gardens? They need so much help. The surge of anger surprised me, and I tamped it down as quickly as it came. God knows I wasn't in a position to criticize another person's work ethic lately. No, it's time I got up. What brings you out here? She straightened her back slowly, like a cat stretching. Oh, how could I have forgotten my whole purpose so quickly? I held out my awkwardly wrapped book. In the daylight, the sunflower scarf looked bright and garish, not at all like the elegant furoshiki it was mimicking. Was it too late to pretend this wasn't a gift? Why hadn't I just brought the book unwrapped? Honda was studying me, a mild smile on her face. Is that for me? I nodded. I wanted to thank you for returning my camera. You have no idea how much that meant to me. I held out the bundle, and she accepted it with both hands and a bow of her head. You do not have to give me a present, Mari-san. It was nothing. It wasn't nothing. I thought I'd dropped the camera in the pond or lost it forever. Honda allowed a warm smile to grace her face. I found it in a rather odd location. 
Did you hang it on that maple branch and forget where you'd left it? I, I didn't hang it anywhere. I was, I couldn't think of a way to finish that sentence without sounding even more crazy. The camera must have fallen out of its bag and someone picked it up. But that someone apparently hadn't been Honda. Thankfully, Honda was too occupied with the gift to notice the confusion passing over my face. She unwrapped the scarf as if it were a precious offering, laying each corner out to reveal the book underneath. Such care only exposed the paltriness of my gift compared to what she'd returned to me, and I cringed inwardly. How nice, she murmured, running her calloused fingers over the cover. I wondered if she could read the words, but perhaps that didn't matter. Art and photography transcend language. She flipped through the pages of goldenrods and sunflowers, prairies and canyons and lakes, a look of quiet interest on her face. I breathed a sigh of relief. It's where I'm from, the photos, that is. It's a photography book of the flora and fauna of my home state. How lovely. She turned the book over, seemed to be reading the back cover. Honda-san gave off the unhurried vibe of someone who allots time in direct proportion to its worth. I couldn't help but feel I was disrupting her allocations, throwing an unknown variable into her carefully examined calculations. I, I should get going. Thank you, Mari-san. I appreciate the gift. She bowed, and I returned the gesture, though it felt clumsy. I turned to leave, but Honda spoke up behind me. Would you like this scarf back? I froze, my eyes fixed on the worn wooden bench in front of me, a tight lump lodging inside my throat. Oh, it's all right. You may have it. I kept the waver out of my voice through sheer will. It's okay, Mari-san. I can tell it belongs with you. I stood, motionless, unable to turn around for fear she'd notice the tears burning in my eyes. But I nodded, and a moment later, Honda's plastic garden shoes crunched across the gravel toward me. I knew I should turn around, smile graciously, but it was all I could do to remain standing. It didn't matter. A moment later, I felt the silky fabric of Mom's scarf draped over my shoulders. I bowed my head in silent thanks, not trusting myself to speak, and walked briskly down the path back toward the inn. The sensation of Honda watching my retreating form restrained me from running, but my fingernails bit deep into my palms as I blinked back hot tears. Chapter 13 Oh, Mari-san, you didn't have to. Una grinned at me, eyes shining. Do you like it? Of course. It's chocolate, right? Una turned the box of chocolate bars over as if inspecting the ingredients. Yeah, it's a famous brand from Chicago. You've been so nice to me, I just wanted to show my appreciation. I smiled up at her from my low table with its gorgeous spread of pickled dishes, fresh tofu, and obligatory miso soup. Actually, Yunachan, could I take a picture of you? 
Next to my breakfast? Me? Yuna flushed and adjusted the neckline of her kimono, though she couldn't hide the wide smile sneaking across her face. Oh, just kneel down. I stepped back a few steps, and Yuna knelt beside the table, hands clasped in her lap. I grabbed my camera off the floor, popped off the lens cover, and snapped a flurry of pictures. Great, now pretend you're setting out the dishes. Yuna, laughing, held back one sleeve and began picking up and replacing each of the dishes on the table with a dramatic flourish. She glanced at me with a coquettish smile and winked at the camera, and I burst out laughing, imagining how the photos would turn out. Perfect. Now all my friends back home will know what Ryokan maids are like. No, you can't show those to your friends. Oh, come on, why not? You look adorable. I laughed, but put the lens cover back on the camera. I wish I did. Yuna stood up, straightened out her kimono. I can never seem to pull off the look as well as the girls in the manga. I opened my mouth to tell her that seriously, she looked great when she blurted out, Marisan, do you have a boyfriend back home in the U.S.? My mind flashed to images of Thad, lying naked in my bed, eating takeout Chinese on my couch, staring at his phone as I screamed at him to get out for the umpteenth time. It's complicated. I expected her to stop there, to take a polite, metaphorical step back from the topic, but not Yuna. Complicated like you don't know how he feels about you, or complicated like you're not sure how you feel about him. Yuna cocked her head and looked at me with such sincerity, as if she were talking to one of her teenage friends instead of a 35-year-old foreigner, that I had to restrain a laugh. Both, or maybe neither. I had a boyfriend, but then we fought, and I left the country. I shrugged. Don't you want to get married? Ah, the naivete of youth. I don't know. It's not really that simple. I set my camera down on the table with a click. To be honest, I don't really know what I want. I'll bet your boyfriend gave you that crazy scarf. Yuna's tone was teasing, and even though I knew it was said in fun, I had to bite back a harsh reply. My hand flew to my neck. It was my mother's. She died. I turned away from the table then, pretended to look out the veranda windows as I blinked back tears yet again. She didn't mean anything by it. Yuna was just a kid. I had to keep reminding myself of the decades between us. But the rawness of my emotions seemed to make every offhand comment feel like salt when it should have rolled off my back like water. Silence. I imagined Yuna's pained expression, but I couldn't bring myself to face her. Oh, Mari-san, I'm so sorry. I had no idea. I know you didn't. Don't worry about it. Moments passed in silence. I reeled myself back from the brink of tears, but at my core, I was tender, sensitive, as if a single touch or wrong word would throw me into sobs. I tightened my jaw and turned back to look at Yuna, managing a small smile to show I was fine. My jaw ached 
as if I'd been clenching it all night in my sleep. Yuna nodded back at me. I know what you need. Come with me. She stood and turned to leave the room, clearly expecting me to follow. Wait, now? Where are we going? I scrambled to my feet. After a moment's hesitation, I untied the scarf from my neck and laid it on the table next to my untouched breakfast. Yuna didn't answer, just skipped out the door and beckoned to me with a mischievous smile on her face. There's something I want to show you, Yuna whispered behind her hand as we walked side by side down the hallway. I just nodded and went along with her. Having Yuna with me made the dark corridors far less unnerving, but I still tried to map where we were going, a fear tickling the edge of my mind that I wouldn't be able to find my way back to my room alone. After a few twists and turns, I began to see light up ahead, as if a spotlight were hitting the wall ahead of us. I slowed my pace. What is it? I whispered to Yuna, a tremor in my voice. She just smiled and grabbed me by the hand, pulling me onward. As we approached, it dawned on me that the light was daylight. One section of wall, perhaps 15 feet long, was made of floor-to-ceiling glass, looking out into an open-air courtyard. Yuna turned to watch my odd expression as I took in the postage-stamp Japanese garden growing in the center of the inn. All the garden elements, the stone benches, granite lanterns, even trees and bushes, were miniaturized versions of reality, nothing taller than my knee. The effect was striking, but also unsettling. On three sides were solid walls of frosted glass, although I detected the outline of a door in one of them, leaving only the close wall transparent and it felt for all the world like looking into an alien aquarium housing a miniature microcosm only 15 foot square. In the tiny white gravel paths and evergreen hedges, I could see the shadowy sister of the gardens outside. And even as my eyes feasted on the otherworldly beauty of these perfectly manicured bonsai trees, my heart ached at the bittersweet realization that the Ryokan's gardens had once been this magnificent. This was how they should be. If only Yuna had told me where we were going, I could have brought my camera. Perhaps Yuna misinterpreted the tears brimming in my eyes. She decided to fill the air with chatter as if to distract me. Do you see the tiny tea house? When I first came here, I used to sit in front of the glass and gaze at the garden every chance I got. I nodded absently at her words. Does Honda-san take care of this garden? Yuna took her eyes off the garden to stare at me. You know Honda-san? Why would- Yuna-chan. We both froze and turned slowly toward the sound of Ogura's voice, as if we were children caught with our hands in the cookie jar. Yuna must have sensed my unease, for she jumped into action. Performing a quick bow, she replied cheerfully, Ogura-san, I was just showing our guest the jewel of Yanagi Inn, as I know she appreciates beauty. I believe Mar- Lennox-san may want to photograph the courtyard garden. 
At this, Ogura stood up a little straighter, if that were even possible, and I could swear the hint of a smile graced her lips. Very well, Yuna-chan. Please attend to the linens as soon as you are done here. Yes, Ogura-san. Yuna bowed again. As Ogura passed, I bobbed my head. Although she didn't acknowledge me, just kept her head held high and gracefully disappeared into the shadows of the corridor in her white socked feet. After a few moments, Yuna turned to me and whispered, Ogura-san herself tends to the courtyard garden. She takes great pride in it. Ah, I nodded and took in the small space with fresh eyes. Ogura-san was a talented gardener. She had to be passionate about the art to maintain this space, small as it was. It was hard to imagine her kneeling to trim the grass with pinking shears. Yet something about the overall effect fit in nicely with Ogura's demeanor. Classically beautiful, refined, everything in its proper place. After a few more moments of appreciative silence, Yuna spoke up again. I should probably go now. If Ogura-san notices I haven't gathered the linens, she'll be upset. I nodded. Thanks for sharing this with me, Yuna. It truly is special. A warm smile spread across my face. I think I'll stay here a little while longer, if you think that's all right. Of course, Mari-san. You are a guest here, and the garden is for everyone. She took such pleasure in small things, like showing off a lovely view to a new friend. When had I lost that gift? Yuna disappeared down the hallway, and I sat down in front of the wall of glass. As my gaze roamed over the tiny features, a feeling of deja vu stole over me. A few of the bonsai appeared to be tiny weeping willows, I thought, rather belatedly, oh, like the name of the inn. And then a memory sprang to my mind so viscerally, I felt I was watching it in real time. My mother, sitting on a wooden stool in our small backyard in Japan, wearing a white sundress and apron, trimming her weeping willow bonsai. Since mom didn't have many friends in Japan, she took up hobbies she could practice in the house or our small garden. One day, she declared she wanted to take up the art of bonsai. A week later, she brought home a small tree, a kit of tools, and a glossy photo book on the art. Mom poured her heart and soul into that tree, trimming it regularly, sometimes to the poor thing's detriment, her passion bordering on obsession. When we moved to Chicago a few years later, Mom was devastated to learn she couldn't bring the bonsai with her. She must have known it wouldn't travel overseas very well, but she put off addressing it for so long that we had already packed and the moving company had arrived to pick up the boxes when she finally talked to the movers about the tree. They said the company wouldn't transport anything alive, plant or animal, and she'd have to leave it behind. There was no way she'd leave it with Dad, who was staying behind in Japan, so she ended up gifting it to our neighbor, an elderly woman who lived alone. 
Mom was so paranoid the old woman would forget to water and care for it, as the woman was more than a little forgetful. And I remember Mom nearly in tears, begging the poor woman to write down on her calendar when the tree should be trimmed. Maybe that's why Mom always had a garden wherever we lived after that. Even in her townhouse, she kept that little collection of potted plants and garden herbs. I should have gotten her another bonsai tree. Now, gazing at the tiny willow, I felt a sudden desire to garden, to cultivate new life with my own hands. Photography had always been my creative outlet, but it did not breathe new life into the world the way working with plants did. Yet I didn't have a single flower pot in my apartment back home. That would have to change. A lot of things were going to change when I got back home to Chicago. Chapter 14 After breakfast, I told myself it was time to get down to business. With my camera bag heavy around my neck and Mom's garish scarf tucked into my yukata pocket, I set out to take some photographs. It occurred to me that I hadn't taken any photos of the inn's exterior, so I wound my way through the halls, through the empty lobby, and out to the front of the building. In the light of day, the inn's disheveled exterior was more depressing than eerie. The overgrown bushes, the peeling paint, they felt like mere symptoms of a greater disease affecting the entire property. I popped off the lens cap and framed my shots. The worn wooden sign, the red paper lantern, the black stones lining the path infested with weeds. Then I stood back, far down the gravel drive, to get an expansive shot of the building's front, the camera's quiet shutter clicks, the only noise in the otherwise silent air. I shivered and started to walk back inside. But no, I told myself, there was more of the building than its entryway. I should walk the perimeter, capture the exterior from multiple sides. I skirted the edge of the building, feeling like a burglar, though it was late morning and I was a guest, but soon encountered a rustic wooden fence blocking my way. I sighed, snapped a few photos, but they were uninspired. Maybe I could try the other side. But then I saw movement where the fencing met the wall of bushes lining the building. A bird? I crept closer, camera at the ready. No. Two shining eyes stared out at me from inside the shaggy bush. Cat eyes. I squatted down, called gently. Here, kitty kitty. I raised my camera, hoping for a cool shot if the cat emerged. Then a rustling and the eyes were gone. Crap. I dropped the camera to my chest. But where had the cat gone? Surely it didn't live inside the bush. I crept closer, following the line of the fence, and pushed the bushes away. There, a panel missing from the fence where it abutted the building. Big enough for a cat. Maybe big enough for me. I chuckled to myself. Why should I squeeze through broken down fences? I could just go around the other way. But then I heard talking behind me, 
coming from the front of the building. Ogura, giving directions to an employee, perhaps. There wasn't anything wrong with me being out here, I scolded myself, but still my heart rumbled inside my chest. I had to make a choice, go back the way I came and possibly face Ogura, or act like a child and squeeze through a cat hole. I chose the cat hole. This time, however, I paused long enough to ensure the zipper on my camera bag was firmly closed before I plunged forward and edged through the opening, trying not to snag my yukata on the rough wood or the greedy bushes. I popped out on the other side, forced through another snarly evergreen bush, and then I was free. I was in some side yard on an unglamorous side of the building, just a narrow passageway of gravel along a featureless edge of the inn. There was an occasional sliding door, but no verandas. I took a moment to gather myself, smooth down my clothes and hair. At least I was in the gardens again. How quickly I had abandoned my plans to photograph the building and given in to the temptation of wandering. I told myself it was the way Ogura-san had startled me, that I was just wanting to put distance between myself and the inn. But it was more than that. It was as if my feet carried me of their own accord, directing me onto the paths which would take me to the pond. This time, as I stood on the water's edge, I could feel the pull of two differing possibilities. One path turned me around, back to the inn and away from the island. I could still take my photographs, discuss options with the owner, and do my job while minding my own business. But the second path led forward across the submerged stones onto the island. This second path was exciting, but also terrifying. Something about the island unsettled me. It was risky, too, for I was straying not just from the known, but also from the permitted. I knew the island was a forbidden space, and I would be breaking the trust of Yanagian's owner and staff if I trespassed there. Yet, something had drawn me here, to the pond, to the island. I couldn't ignore this pull I was feeling, or the strange things I thought I'd been hearing, the cicada songs or the crying at night. I was starting to believe these things were all connected, and that the connection might somehow involve me. I kicked off my sandals and peeled off my socks. When I took a tentative step onto the stepping stone, submerged a few inches under the pond's murky surface, the water was a shock of cold to the ball of my foot that sent a shiver through my body. Standing on that first stone, and looking like I was magically floating on the surface of the water, I'm sure, I scanned the sky and the treetops on the island, searching for my friend the crane. When I didn't spot her, when I didn't see any life at all in the trees or sky, no ravens or sparrows or even any insects, my heart clenched inside my chest, doubt creeping in. I hadn't realized I needed her blessing, that magnificent crane, sole master over the now desolate island. But now that she didn't appear to me when I was finally making my entrance, 
I was left with a heavy foreboding. I shouldn't be doing this. Yet I couldn't turn back, couldn't resist the lure of the island, not when I was so very close. I took another step out into the water, using a stick to tap, 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 and smooth away the duckweed until I found the exact center of each stone. I progressed a few more steps in the same fashion, sweat beating on the back of my neck. Though the air was cool and my feet were submerged almost up to my ankles in cold pond water. Though a little voice in my head told me to stride forward boldly and not even pause lest I lose my nerve. I stopped to catch my breath when I reached the center stone and looked around me as I'd done before. And there it was, that sense of being exposed out in the middle of the water where I was not allowed where if I slipped, I would be instantly submerged in the cold darkness, unable to swim, unable to breathe. I closed my eyes and pressed my toes against the smooth surface of the stepping stone, pushing down the sensation of a hot spotlight framing my face. Breathe, Mari, breathe. I was back on stage. My first violin recital performed in a large auditorium in front of hundreds of people, parents and grandparents and students and instructors. My violin was in the rest position, tucked under my arm, and I squinted against the spotlight, scanning for my mother. She wasn't there. I was sweating, the streams trickling down under my crisp white dress, and I blinked and blinked against the light. She said she'd be here. I couldn't do it with all these strangers, the challenging stares of Japanese mothers and grandmothers, all wondering what this gaijin girl was doing up on stage, looking bewildered and so alone. My instructor, Yamada-san, stood in the wings, hidden by the curtain from the audience, but I could see her gesturing for me to lift the violin to my shoulder to begin. She must have thought I had stage fright, but that wasn't it at all. I just needed mom there. I needed to see her smile, to know she, among all these other audience members, wanted me to succeed. But she wasn't there. My bow hand tightened into a fist. I lifted the violin to my shoulder, and Yamada-san relaxed, drooping a little with relief. But I didn't start playing. I craned my neck, still scanning the audience for mom's platinum blonde hair amongst the sea of dark heads. Nothing. I waited another breath, then another. Murmurs rose from the audience. Someone coughed. A child laughed, and his mother shushed him. Still, I didn't start, and Yamada-san mimicked frantic bowings in the corner of my vision. Sweat dribbled down the back of my neck from the hot spotlight, and I wiped my forehead with the back of my bow hand. Then, bam, the auditorium door slammed open, and the entire audience turned with an audible creak toward the back to see the newcomer. And my heart soared, mom towing little Rissa behind her. I wanted to clap. Someone in the audience, clearly connecting the blonde woman to the struggling little white girl on stage, did start a round of applause. But instead, 
I waited patiently for Mom and Rissa to slide into the nearest empty seats, and then I placed my bow on the strings, inhaled a quick breath, and began to play, my eyes never leaving Mom's. I opened my eyes and gazed down at my feet, lightly submerged in the water, duckweed encroaching as it quivered in the slight current. A smile warmed my face, and the spotlight disappeared. No one was watching me, at least no one in this world. My grip tightened on my stick, and I poked in the water for the next stepping stone. For a few moments, I couldn't find it. An alarm shot through my body. But then, knock, I hit a hard surface, and with a few taps and swipes, I had found my next step. I shifted my weight, placed my foot on the next stone, this one deeper, submerging my ankle, a profound sense of accomplishment washing over me. Everything worth accomplishing can be accomplished one small step at a time. Baby steps, Mari. And with my stick swishing and small steps from stone to stone, I finally made my way to the island. Chapter 15 The moment I set foot onto the island, I collapsed to my knees on the wet shore, overcome with nervous exhaustion. I didn't relish the return trip, but that would come later. For now, I was safe. I glanced over my shoulder at the other side of the pond. No Ogura-san rushing to the water's edge, shouting and waving a broom at me for my transgressions. From the mainland, the island's interior wouldn't be visible thanks to the overgrowth of boundary bushes and trees, the groves of bamboo that had long been left unchecked. So I quickly pushed through the fuzzy branches of junipers and pines to find myself, finally, in the island's core, away from judgmental eyes. I stood amid entropy incarnate. My gaze slid from one vision of decay and disorder to another, the ruins of an old tea house, little more than a moss-covered roof and three bowed walls besieged by vines. Gravel trails, reminiscent of the paths on the mainland, so overtaken by grass and debris that they were almost indiscernible. Cracked granite basins filled with decomposing leaves, stone benches nearly obscured by the bushes embracing them. My heart ached, and I wondered if I had been wrong. Was this island nothing more than a mirror of the main gardens, further distorted due to longer neglect? But then I heard the cicadas. A quiet buzz at first, their song rose louder and louder until they were a crashing crescendo of deafening trills. I could focus on nothing else. I clapped my hands over my ears and squeezed my eyes shut, fighting off the sensory overload. But then, as if someone had pushed the mute button on a TV remote, the cicada song stopped. I slowly removed my hands from my ears and opened my eyes. Summer. Tree branches, heavy with vibrant green leaves, swayed overhead, the breeze scented with a bouquet of innumerable flowers. But it wasn't just that. The garden was healed. The tea house was restored. The white gravel paths pristine, and the azalea bushes carefully shaped. 
time slowed. My heart thudded loudly and painfully in my chest. A single fat bumblebee drifted silently past my nose. Then the cicada song returned. The sound sirened in my ears, but this time it felt natural in the summer day. And down the path, I could hear the distant laughter of children. I spun toward the sound, and it was all gone. The summer, the sounds, even the breeze. I blinked. I was surrounded by the somber grays of an abandoned garden in late winter. Was I going mad? Something about this place, the inn, the gardens, the island, was infecting me. It wasn't just the cicadas and the laughter. I'd heard the ghostly crying at night, felt inescapable compulsions to go where I wasn't supposed to go. And mom, why was I seeing my dead mother? I took a deep breath in, held it, then let it go. After all, my hallucination, for what else could it be, of the garden in full summer glory, the overgrown chaos around me shaded everything with a heavy milieu of sorrow, and I walked in a guilt-tinged reverential silence along the paths, treading upon the withered leaves and petals of long-ago seasons. An eddy of icy air stirred up the dregs nature had left behind, compelled me to wrap my arms around myself for warmth as I walked on. An image of my mother's forsaken potted plants rose before my mind. The sweet basil, oregano, and spearmint plants, now drooping and dried, turned that unique color of dusty gray-brown found only on beloved plants left to ruin. I stood in the center of it all, turning in a full circle to take everything in, a slow fire building up through my sternum. Why had this magical place been forsaken? My mind ticked through a catalog of tasks to be done, my annoyance growing. How many years had this garden been abandoned and allowed to go to seed? Ten? Twenty? As I took my mental inventory, debris removal, pruning, planting, a tickling started up in the back of my brain. The shape of a stone lantern here, the cluster of willows there. Why did they look so familiar? It certainly looked like the perfect backdrop for a movie. Was it something I'd watched as a child? I followed the winding gravel trail, ducking under the branches of an overgrown holly tree. Yes, I had known there would be a bench there, under a comically large crepe myrtle. How? Then I laughed. The courtyard garden inside the inn. It was a tiny, perfect mirror of this island garden, a microcosm contained within the walls of Yanagi Inn. My eyes opened anew. I strolled the paths, noting each landmark, some more overgrown or ill-proportioned than others, verifying my theory. It was as if I'd eaten one of Alice's cakes and now found myself wandering through the tiny paths inside the miniature courtyard garden. I looked up, half expecting to see Ogura-san's enormous head gazing at me from behind an immense panel of glass. But no, this was real, this overgrown Garden of Eden. The courtyard might be the jewel of the inn, 
but this garden must have once been the crown of the entire estate. Thankfully, the stone features of the garden were largely ageless. It seemed only the living, breathing elements had suffered. I stumbled across what had once been a serene rock garden, its sands raked with utmost care and precision, but was now so invaded by moss and weeds that little sand was visible. Only the large sentinel rocks in the center of an otherwise featureless landscape showed that the area had once been a focal point. I settled onto a bench under the shade of an overhanging maple tree, though the chilly, overcast day hardly required a shelter, and the bare branches could hardly be said to provide it. Gray, I thought, as my gaze roved the scenery in front of me. Everything had a pallor over it, as if it had been dusted with the sleeping powder from Sleeping Beauty. Beside my bench was a raised granite basin, the size of a bathroom sink and filled with murky water. I idly picked up a thick stick from the ground, stirred up the dark bottom of the basin, turning the water into a gray sludge. The activity felt familiar, setting off long unused synapses in my brain, as if I'd done it before. I kept swirling, a witch stirring her cauldron, staring into its depths to revive the sensation again. But the image was gone, the moment lost. I stood and started walking down the path, but the itching on the edge of my memory followed me. Of course the island is familiar, Mari. You studied its miniature for almost an hour. But it was more than that. I turned a corner and knew I would find a stone lantern before I even peeked under the obscuring branches. I whispered, white pebbles, and then turned another corner to see a faux stream of tiny rocks trickling past. I walked inside the white stream, though I knew it was forbidden. All of this was forbidden, and understood subconsciously where I was headed, though on the surface I had no clue. A bridge, I whispered, my feet crunching the tiny stones, and around the bend I found it, a striking half-moon bridge crowning the White Rock River, just as I'd seen it in my mind. A child's laugh. I spun around, but of course I was alone. No children were anywhere near this forsaken place. I frowned at my mind's tricks and kept walking, the unease settling upon me like layers of incense dust. I was drawn to the bridge, which must have once been painted a brilliant red and was now worn and peeling. But some hidden memory kept me from climbing its steep sides. Under the bridge, I thought. And though it was tight, I bent and duck-walked underneath it, my camera bag bouncing against my knees. On impulse, I began digging in the white stones with a stick, like a child playing on a sandy beach. I hit something, something hard and solid. I drew in a slow breath and then unearthed a small wooden box in the exact spot I'd chosen to dig. A chill ran down my spine. I'd known it would be there. And there was no way this buried box would have been visible in the microcosm garden inside the inn. My hands trembled as I lifted the dusty box out from the stones. I turned the box over in my hands, 
searching for a latch or lock, but found none. Mystified, I ran my fingers over the inlaid wood patterns. Ah, a puzzle box. I poked and prodded the different colored segments of wood. Some budging, some sliding, but none opening. I shifted in my squatted stance, thighs straining from the unaccustomed position. Then I sighed and set the box back in the hole I'd dug in the rocks, fully intending to cover it back up and walk away, but I couldn't. I couldn't even take my eyes off it. I pulled out my camera, took a few shots of the box from different angles, but it wasn't enough. Well, I found myself reasoning. I could just take the box back to my room, discover its secrets at my leisure. I'd bring it back, of course. I'd just be borrowing it. I knew these were justifications, that the box wasn't mine to take, yet I couldn't fight the urge to take it with me. I pulled Mom's scarf from my pocket, tied it into a cloth bag with handles, and secreted the small box inside, even as a lump of guilt formed in my throat. I turned to leave, but then spotted something on the underside of the bridge. Something was carved on one of the worn wooden planks. I squinted. Numbers? I grabbed my camera, snapped a photo with flash, and inspected the viewfinder. 080890. A code? For a moment, I was struck by a sense of deja vu. And as I ran my fingers along the hard edge of the numbers, my conscious mind struggled to see whatever was playing out behind the curtains of my subconscious. It didn't work. I sighed, and Duck walked out from under the bridge, carrying the scarf bag with its illicit cargo with me. After stretching my cramped muscles, I pulled out my camera again, slowly, apologetically, as if I were a tourist in a solemn Catholic cathedral. There was something sacred about this place, about the wayward trees, the dead vines shrouding the stone features, like an ancient burial ground rediscovered after being left undisturbed for centuries. I felt like an intruder. And I suppose I was. Even though I was a guest at the inn, I was not allowed here on the island. Perhaps this was too much, this trespassing, and someone would find out about my activities, perhaps even call the police. But, I thought, I was only taking photographs. That couldn't hurt, right? Just a few, here or there. And no one had to know. The pictures I took on the island didn't have to be part of the portfolio I would ultimately put together for the purposes of public display after I left Yanagi Inn and returned to my apartment in Chicago, to my microwaved single-serving meals instead of the elaborate Japanese breakfasts, to my plush American bed instead of the firm futon mattress upon the tatami. An ache radiated through my heart and out through my body but I tamped it down. My old life, with its complications and stress and grief, felt very far away. I decided to focus on the minutiae of the island, the tiny pockets of beauty rather than the tangled mess of its totality. Fortunately, these pockets were everywhere. 
in the mossy sentinel rocks, in the surprisingly white marble bench shrouded by deep evergreen branches. The uncovering of each new scene was deliciously illicit. Maybe I would make a photo book of nothing but the pictures from this island and keep it just for myself. Never let anyone else see them. Art for art's sake. A cluster of towering bamboo. Click, click. The remnants of uneven stepping stones emerging from a sea of moss. Click, click. That's enough, Mari. You should head back. Yet I kept wandering. I entered a small clearing at the edge of the pond and spotted a waist-high stone figure perched on a raised mound. I brushed aside the clinging vines and sucked in a breath as I realized what it was. A Jizo statue, but a sattva, guardian of travelers and children's souls. I'd seen plenty of Jizo statues around Japan, of course, but usually off to the side of well-traveled paths or in cemeteries, not in the middle of Ryokan's gardens. His rounded, bald head, the tattered remains of a red bib around his neck, a broken, sun-bleached, red and yellow pinwheel lying on the ground beside him. What was he doing here? Time froze. The air around me grew dense and difficult to breathe. I ached to touch the rounded head of the Jizo statue, to retie his bib, to repair the negligence. But no, I was an intruder. I shouldn't be here, taking pictures of this sad, hallowed garden where I was forbidden to set foot. My photos felt tainted, invasive, like contraband from a poacher. And yet, the statue was striking, a profoundly moving image in this lonely, wild space. Like the old baby doll I'd once seen in a photograph of Chernobyl, poking up out of the tall weeds in what had once been an amusement park. How much time had passed since anyone touched this garden? My fingers twitched. I wanted, needed to capture this powerful image. I lifted my camera. In a flurry, I snapped photos, slowly rotating around the statue to try different angles. Then I dropped my camera back to my chest with a frown. This felt sacrilegious, even to my heathen self. The statue needed to be shown respect. Maybe I could come back, clean it up, give it a new bib, restore some of its dignity so it radiated like a beautiful lotus in the middle of a murky pond, instead of being just one more muddy rock. With effort, I made myself turn away although the image of the speckled gray statue remained seared in my mind. It was time I returned to my room. I braced myself for the walk back across the slippery stones, though I found the anxiety lessened this time. Perhaps it was because I knew I'd braved the treacherous path once and survived. I knew I could reach my destination this time. But as I dipped each foot into the cold water legs trembling. I couldn't get the island's images out of my mind. After experiencing the woeful, neglected state of the garden, I needed to know more. When my feet once again touched solid ground, I released a deep breath, shook out my arms and nerves. 
Where would Honda-san be this time of day? I glanced up at the sun, gauging the time. I'd stopped wearing my Fitbit watch since coming to Yanagi Inn. Shutting that wristband had been like removing a yoke from my neck and stepping into a simpler existence. A world with rounded bowls of white rice for breakfast, strolls through aging Japanese gardens, and luxuriating in hot spring baths. I really should go take a bath one of these days. It was probably around noon. Where would she eat lunch? Inside the inn? Even thinking of lunch brought a low rumbling to my stomach. Then, somewhere distant, I could hear the low, hollow ringing of a bell. Faint at first, it grew louder as I attuned my ears, and I turned myself slowly, orienting my body toward the mysterious sound. Away, I thought. The ringing was coming from the opposite direction of Yanagi Inn. Although Marie finally managed to explore the mysterious Forbidden Island, it only raises more questions. Why does everything seem so familiar to Marie? And why wasn't the statue included in the garden's original designs? Find out by tuning in to our next episode. So don't forget. So, don't forget to subscribe to CamCat Unwrapped. If you don't want to miss a beat, listen to The Secret Garden of Yanagi Inn now on the audiobook platform of your choice. All our books are also available in print and ebook formats on camcatbooks.com or wherever books are sold. You can find Amber A. Logan and Camcat Books on social media by checking out the link in our bio. Tune in to hear all of our audiobooks as we release them right here on Camcat Unwrapped as serialized podcasts. The first two episodes of every book can always be found here, but subsequent episodes will only be available for free listening for a short time after their release. After that, they'll be gone. But don't worry, the audiobooks are available for purchase on Audible and other major retailers. CamCat Unwrapped also offers other CamCat books as podcasts. Also, check out our background episodes where we interview our authors and have them participate in fun writing challenges. Before you go, please take a moment to leave us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you. Tune in again to CamCat Unwrapped, because CamCat Unwrapped is where book lovers meet. <laughs>